<clears throat> Turn, please, to Ezekiel in chapter 15. Ezekiel chapter 15, I want to read um, this chapter, verses 1 through 8. Ezekiel chapter 15. Upon finding that, uh, please pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, this is your word, and we pray that you would uh, work it into our hearts. Uh, you have said that your word would accomplish its purpose, and thus we pray that its purpose would be one of grace to bring to us, so we pray that you, it would accomplish its purpose in us to convict, to encourage, most especially to draw us close to Christ. Please, we pray do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 15 and verse 1. And the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, how does the wood of the vine surpass any wood, the vine branch that is among the trees of the forest? Is wood taken from it to make anything? Do people take a tent, I'm sorry, do people take a peg from it to hang any vessel on it? Behold, it is given to the fire for fuel. When the fire has consumed both ends of it and the middle of it is charred, is it useful for anything? Behold, when it was whole, it was used for nothing. How much less when the fire has consumed it and it is charred? How can it ever be used for anything? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I have given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them. And you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them. And I will make the land desolate because they have acted faithlessly, declares the Lord God. As I began this past week to prepare for a sermon I preached on Sunday night at our Presbytery meeting uh, this weekend, uh, I was preaching that Friday night from Ezekiel 13, since I finished from Ezekiel 12 uh, the time before, but I had to really think that it might be shocking to people to walk into a worship service and hear from Ezekiel. So I had to explain to them why I had chosen Ezekiel in the first place. It was easy for me to explain why I was preaching from Ezekiel 13 because I finished Ezekiel 12 on Sunday and you know me, fairly predictable numerically. And uh, it did deal with prophets, which was helpful in talking to a bunch of preachers. But, but I did have to make some sense of apology for why I was preaching from Ezekiel. And I rethought why it was and, and, and I revisited the very fact that for me at least the reason I came to Ezekiel was so that I could know God more completely and better. That was my personal reason. Pastorally for you is that we could all learn to know God as completely as we possibly can uh, this side of eternity. And, and I realized that it's easy for us to get a very fragmented view of God by taking pretty select passages and avoiding some difficult passages, Ezekiel being a whole book of difficult passages. And so uh, it's easy for us to skip it. And I don't think probably if I would die or have retired before I get to Ezekiel, I don't think anyone would have criticized me on that, on that point. Uh, although uh, John Calvin did die after Ezekiel 20, so I'm hoping I get at least farther <laughs> than he. I don't know. He, lectured on Ezekiel 20 and died shortly thereafter, uh, so I'm trusting I can do better than Calvin, at least in, in this. But, um, but really, this sense of knowing, knowing God, and for me, upon reflection, it has been tremendously helpful, because it's enabled me to see again how devastating sin is, 
and how frightening it would be for God to hide his face and how frightening it would be for God to forsake us and for how frightening it would be to sit and just try to stand under the wrath of God. And so in seeing that, you see, it's helped me to see God more clearly in his holiness and even to see Christ more clearly in the cross because it's enabled me to appreciate what Christ has done even more because I've seen in all these pictures and all these prophecies and the enactments and so forth and we'll see even as Jerusalem is destroyed what it is that Christ did on our behalf because he did stand for us with God's face hidden against him and forsaken by him and he did experience the great devastating wrath of God against sin not his own but ours of course and so it enables me to see as I go through here the cross more clearly and the work of Christ better and to really appreciate my own salvation and yours as well because we begin to realize again what it is that I've deserved and yet what I've gotten because of because of the work of Christ and so it has been tremendously helpful and powerful in my own life and so as we see Ezekiel and he gets this vision from God and he's humbled and he receives the word of God as the spirit of God brings it to him and gives him ears to hear and even as he goes out and proclaims that in a variety of different ways for me it's been very helpful and even we saw a, a 21st century problem all the way back in Ezekiel's day because Ezekiel had been prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem and of course people were saying well when's this really going to happen in fact I bet it really isn't going to happen because you've been talking about this and we've been hearing about this for quite some time not only from Ezekiel but from prophets before for literally centuries and so how is it that this is really going to happen and people began to doubt that, that really this was going to take place and the ones who, who were, gave some credence to the prophetic word that this destruction of Jerusalem would come were convinced it wouldn't come in their generation convinced it wouldn't come in their lifetime and of course we realized that the apostle Peter had that very same problem where people would come to him and said we've heard about this Jesus going to return and yet he hasn't in these 30 years since he ascended and now 1950 years later we're still saying he's going to return and the day of the Lord will come and people are saying oh I don't think so and so we have to understand how God marks time and why God is delaying and, and the blessing and the, the grace that that really is and Friday night, as I dabbled with my pastor friends, began to realize the great significance of this word of God because it's that word of God that enables us to stand because you see the problem that Jerusalem faced as, as the enemy Babylon was coming against them was not the Babylonians. The people in Jerusalem were in danger from God. He was bringing the Babylonians. And they were in danger from God because of their faithlessness, and he would judge them. And as Ezekiel put it, the day of the Lord was coming. Now, when we think of the day of the Lord, we think of that day of the Lord that's to come in the future, that day of judgment and, and all of that that's coming in the future, and that's true. But this day of the Lord that was to come in Jerusalem as it was going to be destroyed was a shadow, a figure of what was to come in the future. And so he referred to it as the day of the Lord's wrath. And who can stand in the day of the Lord's wrath? And of course, the only ones who can stand in the day of the Lord's wrath are those who are forgiven by him. And thus, we see the great necessity of the gospel. And we mustn't waver from the gospel at all because ultimately that's, that's what's important. That's the deal. Can we stand before God? Because our enemy isn't cancer and our enemy isn't Iraq and our enemy isn't all of these things that seem to be our enemies at the moment. But we need to be able to stand against the wrath of God. And so Christ has come, of course, and taken that wrath upon himself, therefore enabling us to stand in that great day. And so I've been able to see all of that again. 
And it's been helpful. Now, as we come to this particular chapter 15, in chapters 15, 16, and 17, we see metaphors or parables, even allegories of, 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 of what is going to take place. And you'll notice in the bulletin I had said I was going to read selective readings from Exodus, I'm sorry, from Ezekiel 15, 16, and 17, because I really thought I'd get all that done today. But I looked a little more closely and got a little more reasonable and said, how about chapter 15? Because here we see something very, very important. Because Ezekiel is calling the people to, through God to, 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 to make a comparison. And he wants them to make a comparison between the woody parts of a vine, the wood of a vine, think of a grapevine, the woody part of that grapevine is rather slender, a little bit supple, the woody part of a vine to the branch or the limb or even the trunk of one of the trees of the forest. So I want you to make a comparison between the wood of a vine and the wood of an oak tree, let's say. And then he begins to say of the wood of the vine, it doesn't look very useful compared to this great wood that comes from the oak tree. In fact, it's not even useful enough to cut it up and to make it into little pegs that you can stick in the wall and hang your cooking pots on. It won't even do that for you. In fact, all that it can do is really be thrown into the fire. But it, but it doesn't even really burn very well. It just sort of burns on the ends and chars. And then you pick it up and you look at it and think, oh, we've got to throw it back in if it's going to get all burned up. And he said, you see, it really isn't very useful at all compared to this oak tree and the wood that comes from it. And so we say, all right, Ezekiel, what's this mean? Now, we have an inkling because we're in Ezekiel 15. We've already done 14 chapters of Ezekiel. So we have an inkling that has something to do with Jerusalem. And in fact, it does. Because in Ezekiel 15 and verse 6, Ezekiel says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, like the wood of the vine among the trees of the forest, which I've given to the fire for fuel, so have I given up the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and I will set my face against them. Though they escape from the fire, the fire shall yet consume them, and you will know that I am the Lord when I set my face against them, and I will make the land desolate because they've acted faithlessly declares the Lord. And so it's a picture of this vine wood being put into the fire and destroyed. But you say, God, that's not a very, very fair comparison. You know, the wood from a vine and the wood from an oak tree. Because vines, well, vines weren't known for their wood. If you were, if you were an entrepreneur, you wouldn't plant a vine so you could harvest it for its wood. But if you had a forest, you would take the wood. It would be appropriate for you to take the wood from the trees of the forest because that's why they're there. That's how you make your money with an oak tree. You make your money with a vine, not from its wood, but from its fruit. And God would say, that's the point. There isn't any fruit. There isn't any fruit on the vine. So all that's left is the wood of the vine. And I agree with you, that wood is useless. It's not useful for anything. It doesn't even burn well, but it will. And he said, that's the problem with Jerusalem. That's the problem with my people. There's no fruit. And because there's no fruit, and because I've called them to be fruitful, and there is no fruit, there's no use. And so they'll be destroyed. Now that God uses this image of a vine for Israel is, is not unusual, not surprising. For instance, and you don't need to turn to this necessarily, but in Psalm 80, 
Israel is described like this in verse 8. He says, you, that is God, brought a vine out of Egypt. And so even at that point in time, Israel is being described as this vine that's being brought out of Egypt. Who came out of Egypt? Well, the Israelites, but figuratively speaking, was a vine. And he said, you brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. And so, so he says Israel is like a vine. And so very often when God is referring to Israel, to his people, he refers to them in the context of a vine. Isaiah does it as well, for instance. In Isaiah chapter 5, we read this. Isaiah says, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard, concerning God's vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewn out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. You see, God had great expectations for Israel. He planted it well. He built a watchtower so he could guard it and watch the growth. And he also built this wine press because he expected to have good grapes so that he could produce wine. That was his expectation. The fruit, the wine. But, it says at the end of verse 2, it yielded wild or sour grapes. That is, the grapes were no good. Verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do uh, for my vineyard than I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I tell you, what I will do to my vineyard, I'll remove its hedge, it'll be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. The briars and thorns shall grow up. I'll also command the clouds uh, that they rain uh, no rain upon it. And so it'll be destroyed. And she says, that's the issue. Fruitlessness. There's no fruit. And God says, if there's no fruit, since I planted you to yield fruit, then you're useless and you'll be destroyed. As I was thinking, I began to think what a horrible thing it is. Not simply to be destroyed. That's horrible enough. Not simply hell. That's horrible enough. And you know I don't tease about that. But how horrible it would be to miss out on the great blessing of knowing God. I began to think in the term of fruitfulness of that parable. You know, it, it's, we call it the parable of the talents. It isn't the parable of the skills. That is, that Jesus gives various people skills to use, but talents. Talents were a monetary uh, mark, a monetary weight. And so when Jesus talks about this master leaving talents to three different servants, he's talking about leaving them investments. He's talking about leaving them work, leaving them work to do, business to do. And uh, one he gives five, one, one two, and the other one. And you remember what happens, the one given five and the one given two doubles their talents. And here's how the master responds. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Now, that's very good. But then he says this, enter into the joy of your master. Now, that little phrase, enter into the joy of your master, has always fascinated me. Fascinated me as a kid because my grandfather always ended his public prayers with that. Well done. He used to, uh, he, he had a little transition. He always prayed way too long. And then, and then at the end, so we knew it was the end, he would say, so that we may hear you say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. 
now you will be faithful over a lot. Enter into the joy of your master. And I remember hearing him say that, first being thrilled it was the end of his prayer. And secondly thinking, what did that mean? Because it sounded so wonderful. It sounded as if God was filled with joy when we were fruitful, when we had done that which he had called us to do. And he was filled with joy. And upon seeing us then, we could enter into the very joy of God. And it seems to me, if anybody knows joy, it must be God. And there's this sense of being caught up with him in his presence in utter and complete joy at that moment in time. And I think how horrible it would be, would be to live one's whole life fruitlessly, without bearing fruits, being a vine with no fruit, and being useless, therefore, and missing the joy of God in some measure in the course of this life, but in infinite measure throughout all eternity. I mean, I mean hell is horrible enough, but to think of missing the very, the very joy of God. When I, when I taught economics, I used to teach this concept called opportunity cost. Some of you are starting to break out in a cold sweat even now from your econ sophomore level classes. But one's opportunity cost is, is to measure the cost of what you're actually doing by what you're giving up for this. What's the value of what you're not doing? What's the value of you're not getting for using your time and your money and all of that in this particular fashion? And you see the opportunity cost, what you're losing by not being fruitful is the joy of God. And as I was thinking about that, I began to think in the context of our own church of the group of people that's most important to me. Now I know that pastors aren't to have favorites, but I do. And I at risk telling you that because some of you won't fit into that category of my favorites. Most of you maybe won't, but my, the people I worry about the most are the children and the teenagers. Those are the people, I must confess, that are on my mind in the context of the life of our church more than anybody else. Sorry, you're on my mind a lot. But they really, a lot. Because I think how horrible it would be for them to grow up in our midst and not get a passion, not get a sense of what it would be to know the joy of God. What it would be to grow up in our midst and not get a sense of what it is to enjoy the very presence of God and desire that. To not be fascinated and captivated by the notion that God is joyful and we can enter into that in him. And we were starting our family. I didn't know very much about raising kids, be, being, a, being a guy. And, and Karen knew a lot about kids being a teacher and so forth. And she had thought about that. And we began to talk. She began to teach me. We began to talk about what are the most important things in the context of raising your children. And she said, I think this, and I think she's been right after now these some years of raising children and being raised by them. But she said, I think one of the most important things is for our kids to know that we like them that we delight in them, that we enjoy them, that there's joy for us in them. When they join with us, when they're with us, we're enjoying ourselves, and we desire, therefore, them to be caught up in that joy. And I thought, yes, that's what it means, in some sense, 
to enter in the joy of your master. Now, we never got the children to call us master. <laughs> that was the, that's where we made the mistake. But this sense of joy in the presence of another, this sense of joy in the presence of one who is pleased with you, you see. And to think that God in heaven, who is himself satisfied and filled with joy, that he says, now enter my joy, enter the very joy of God. I don't even know how else to talk about that. But it's, it's just, I want to be there. I want to be in that joy. But then I realized, it appears, that to enter into that joy, whether I'm thinking about the context of this vine in Ezekiel 15, or I'm thinking about these who have pleased God in Matthew chapter 25, that it, it depends upon being fruitful. That there's a sense in which we're not fruitful, we don't belong to God. So we can't enter into his presence. But there is a sense of fruitfulness that then enables us to know this very joy of God. And I thought, then, I'm sunk. How can ever I be fruitful? How can that ever be true of me? And then I began to think, by the grace of God, interestingly enough, of Jesus. And then this phrase came to my mind that he said about himself, can you anticipate me? I am the true vine. Whew. I'm not the true vine. That's good. I don't think I can produce this fruit. But he said he is. Turn, John 15, please. John chapter 15. Jesus said he was the true vine. Now, don't turn to this one because I don't want to tax you, but... In the end of Psalm 80, which I read a few minutes ago about Israel being the vine, Psalm 80 miraculously and interestingly ends like this. Verse 12. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit, that is, of this vine, the anticipation of fruitlessness and, and faithlessness? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O, o God of hosts, Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you've made strong for yourself. They've burned it with fire. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then we shall, th then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. You see, the psalmist even there is anticipating Christ. He's saying this one vine gets destroyed. So God, Lord of hosts, if we're ever to come back to you, if we're ever to be fruitful, please put your hand on the man, on your right hand, the Son of Man. And Jesus then comes in John 15 and says, I'm the true vine. We go, yes, of course. Jesus supersedes everything in the Old Testament that's either incomplete or just a shadow or even a failure. Because he is the real temple, isn't he? He is the real priest. He is the real sacrifice. All these other things pointed to him, but he's it. He's the bread of life that is the manna they tasted. He's the real nourishment from heaven. The water they got out of the rock, he's the water out of the rock because out of, out of, out of him comes this living water you see for us. He is the success of Adam's failure. He's the second Adam. 
So he does that which Adam failed to do. Where Adam sinned, Jesus didn't. He's the second Adam. And now we see Israel was the faithless vine. Jesus is the faithful vine. He's the true vine. He's the answer, you see, to this fruitlessness. He's the enablement to be fruitful, to be fruitful, thus to enter in, therefore, to the joy of God. Notice what he says. I'm the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every vine of mine, don't let the of mine mess you up, every vine of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes. So he says, listen, just like in Ezekiel 15, if this, there's no fruit, it's not... It's not worth anything because this has been planted for fruit and if it doesn't bring fruit then the planting's in vain and so it's removed, it's taken away. And please, don't get confused. Don't stretch the illustration. That doesn't mean a Christian loses their salvation if that's going to your mind. Just flush that. But in verse 6 he does make it more plain. He says, If anyone does not abide in me he is thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. A direct allusion to Ezekiel chapter 15. So we know even as Jesus speaks, we don't want to be fruitless. It's important for us to bear fruit. So how do we do that? Verse 3, Jesus says to his disciples, Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. He's saying, now don't sweat this out. Just listen to the illustration and get it and understand what I'm saying. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. So that's the important thing. You've got to stay connected to me. Ancient Israel didn't stay connected to the vine. There were branches but not really connected to the vine. And so they didn't receive from the vine that which they needed in order to bear, in order to really bear fruit. They didn't abide. To abide means to remain in, to live in, to stay connected to. If you ask someone, sort of an old-fashioned kind of way, where is their abode, you're asking them where their house is, where they live, you see. In the South, there's often an interesting expression, and perhaps it's around here as well, I don't know, but people would say to the effect of, well, I can't abide that. What they mean is, I can't live there. Someone may say, I, I can't abide the heat in July. Or if you have a teenager that stays out too late, you have, may say to them, I can't abide your staying out late at night. I can't live that way. Really what you're saying is, you can't abide to do that. And if you continue to do that, your life shall be in danger. But uh, I delight in you, though. Uh, I don't want to confuse you. I don't want to confuse you. Now, so abiding means living, remaining, continuing in. And of course that's true. How else could we bear fruit apart from Christ? We can't. This is just a logical thing. He's saying, so live in me, abide in me, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. Perfect sense. Stay connected to Christ. Verse 5. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. So we know we're to abide, remain, live in Jesus. And if we do, we bear fruit. And if we bear fruit, then we're pleasing to the Father. And if we're pleasing to the Father, what happens? We enter into his joy. Verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And that sounds like carte blanche to be able to ask God for anything we want and get it. And it is. If you're a branch. 
See, branches have very specific prayer requests. We could personify the branch for a minute. Because your average branch, if you've ever talked to one, if your average branch has the desire to bear fruit, your average branch knows that unless it's connected to the vine, it won't bear fruit. So connected to the vine, the branch goes to the vine and asks for something. Now, what would a branch that wants to bear fruit ask for from the vine? Whatever it takes to bear fruit. And so Jesus says, listen, you need to bear fruit. If you don't bear fruit, it means you're not attached to the vine, which is bad. If you do bear fruit, it means you're pleasing to the Father and you'll receive his joy. So if that's your heart to, to abide, and if that's your heart to bear fruit, then go to the vine and say, help me bear fruit. And you know what will happen? The vine will say, of course. Ask whatever you want about bearing fruit. And it will be done. So, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, now the relationship, I suspect, and all of you who are into plants and stuff aren't going to like what I'm going to say, so don't talk to me afterwards. But I suspect that there's something very organic between the branch and the vine that makes it fairly automatic that the right stuff goes from the vine to the branches. I'm sure there are mistakes, but I don't want to know about them. But, but we're human beings. And so when Jesus uses an illustration about a vine and a branch, he understands that, 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 that we're different and mistakes will be made and all of that. And, and so don't go there. I mean, just take the illustration for what it is. Yes, you'll make mistakes in what you ask. You'll get stuff for fruit-bearing that you didn't think you ever asked for. But you did in the way that the Holy Spirit takes our requests and cleans them up and perfects them and takes them to the Son who delivers them to the Father and who then intercedes on the answer to us. Okay? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this... Verse 8, my father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. You see, the fruit bearing doesn't get us to be disciples. That's a work of God. He gives us a new heart. We respond in faith. We're saved. But fruit bearing proves, shows that we really do belong to God. So if there isn't any fruit, there is no assurance. There is fruit. There is assurance that the Father is pleased with us, and if the Father is pleased with us, then we enter into this wonderful joy of the Father. But he says in verse 8, by this my Father is glorified, and this is what glorifies the Father, that we bear fruit. Now why is it that bearing fruit glorifies the Father? Well, first, because we've prayed about it. And since we've prayed about it, then when the fruit comes, who gets thanked? The vine. See, if you go up to a grapevine and you pull a grape off and you whisper to the branch, thanks, the branch will say, if you have ears to hear, don't thank me, thank the vine. Right? It all came from there. And so when we pray and the fruit comes, we give thanks to God. So he's glorified. Not only in that way is he glorified, but he's also glorified because the fruit reflects him. See, remember the word glory can mean honor and majesty and all that, but it also means to reflect. When you look in a mirror, 
even though this doesn't appear to fit all the time. That's your glory. That's your reflection, you see. When you act like yourself, that's your glory. People are seeing you. And when they see, people see this fruit that comes from the vine, it glory, it's the glory of God because it resembles him. People should look at this fruit and go, that reminds me of God. That's something of him that's been produced from that branch. Okay? That's how it glorifies him. Now, I know this is kind of, but hang in there. This is helpful for you and me. Now, verses 9 through 17 in this passage sort of unpack everything I've said in a little bit nicer fashion. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. And so this abiding, this living, is living in the very love of Christ. Living in his love for us, his concern for us, that we bear fruit. Verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Oh. Jesus says, let me use myself as an illustration. I'm always abiding in the love of my Father. And the way that I'm abiding, when I, the way that I live in his love is by honoring him through obedience. Everything I do, I see the Father do. Everything I say, I hear the Father say. I honor him. I obey him. That's how I abide in his love. Jesus had already told his disciples, if you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And my Father will, and I will love you, and my Father will love you, and he will come and make his home in you. And now he's saying, listen, you desire to, love, to abide, to live in the very love of God, the very love of Christ. He says, obey me. Now you may say, does that mean every time I disobey, I'm cut off and burned? No. It means in the context of your experience, when you're disobeying him, you're not abiding in his love. When I do a wedding and we, there's an exchange of wedding rings, uh, during that time, uh, I have the one um, weddie to the wedder. Anyway, put the ring on and say, this ring I give you in token and pledge of our constant faith and abiding love. So when the ring is given, if you will, the covenant is made. And thus, the promise is that we're going to abide, we're going to live, we're going to remain, we're going to stay in each other's love. Now, that should never change legally in that relationship for the course of their life. But someday they'll have children, and their children will be sitting in their second grade class, and if they're biblically literate children, they would say to their teacher, I don't think mom and dad are abiding in each other's love today, given what happened at breakfast. Well, that may well be true, that in the context of their experience at that moment in time, they're not really abiding in love. But they're not cut off from each other. They'll ask for forgiveness. It'll be restored. They'll abide, more or less, as husbands and wives do, again. So Jesus said, abide in my love and obey my commandments. And of course that's true. How can we bear fruit if we're living in disobedience, right? When we do things which disobey God, the end result isn't fruit that resembles God. So, of course, 
we must abide. And in abiding, it must mean obeying. And when we're obeying, then fruit comes. And when fruit comes, it pleases the Father. And when that pleases the Father, we enter into his joy. So verse 11 says, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You see, the commands of God aren't burdensome. Sin is the burden. Sin is what causes the problems. We know that. We don't always learn from that, but we know that. Obedience brings joy. So then we said, okay, what am I to obey? Verse 12, this is my commandment, that you love each other as I have loved you. Jesus said, all right, you want to know the joy of my Father? You want, you want the fruit that's of God? Then don't live selfishly. If you live selfishly, self-centeredly, if the thoughts are for yourself and you're good and what you're going to get out of this and all of that, then you won't have joy because you won't be abiding in the vine because Jesus himself is the very love that was sacrificed to save us. So as long as you're living selfishly and self-centeredly and for yourself, you can't have joy and you won't be living abiding in the love of Christ. In fact, I did this this morning just as an experiment. I always park by the dumpster when I come in, because when I come in, I get here early enough. There are no other cars here. At least if there are, then I make sure nobody's in them, uh, because it would be dangerous. But uh, it's awfully dark when I arrive. And so I parked by the dumpster, and I said, why am I doing this? And, and really, it was because that's, that's just a horrible parking place. So I said, well, I'll take it. That's all right. So I thought, you know, when I'm parking, I should probably be thinking of other people, not me. But that's the only time I ever think of anybody else when I'm parking. Uh, unless it's somebody who has the space I want in front of the restaurant downtown. But maybe our mark should always be we park farthest away or in the yuckiest place. So other people can have the nice place. I mean, even there, well, how do we think that's love-related in the context of our day? As we plan on our day, is it just for us, all this schedule? How is it at all that it's loving in the context of somebody else's life? This is my commandment, that you love one another. As I have loved you, greater love is no one in this than someone who lays down his life for his friends. You're my friends if you do what I command. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing, but I call you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should last. Your fruit should abide. Jesus said, listen, here's why I've saved you. I saved you to bear fruit. If you're not bearing fruit, you're not showing yourselves to be my disciples, so there's no assurance. But I've chosen you to bear fruit. And the way that you do that is that you must abide in me, and you must depend on me. So pray that you'll bear fruit. And in your praying that you must bear fruit and you're abiding in me, understand that you're living in me and no fruit will come unless you obey me. But Jesus, how can I have the strength to obey you? How can I have the power to obey you? Pray. Pray. Ask for this strength and help. 
Don't turn against God at those moments, but pray for strength. And then he says, this fruit. And what exactly will this fruit look like? Well, it's difficult to know exactly. But one hint that we have, of course, is in Galatians. It's in Galatians in chapter 5. Because there we read of something called the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love. Oddly enough, that when God's fruit is being grown in us, it looks like love. And when people see that, they should say, Jesus is at the root of this. Love. Joy. The very entering into the Master's joy that comes from obeying his commandments because we're abiding in him and praying for strength and loving each other. Patience. And peace. I missed one. Peace. Not only peace with God and peace within, but most certainly peace with others and patience. Patience, of course, is that love that we give to people who aggravate us. And you may say, who is that? Well, just move your eyes back and forth. Don't move your head. It'll be too obvious. <laughs> Patience. We need kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, that kind of self-control that enables us to love even though we have all these selfish impulses, to love even though someone is unlovable. That kind of self-control, to follow after Christ even at those moments in time. And of course, we do this not by our own strength, but by faith. Because none of this really uh, is intuitive. None of this really is what we would have decided to do on our own. It's all because God has said it and it makes sense because he said it. We say, yes, therefore I'll trust his wisdom. Therefore I'll trust his strength. Therefore I'll step out to love. And this fruit then comes. I must say that as I've been reading through Ezekiel, I've been at times terrified. And then I think about Jesus. I think about the devastation of hell, and I think about Jesus. I think about having to share this word in the midst of people in the world that may not want to hear it, and how difficult that will be as it was for Ezekiel, and then I think about Jesus, and then I think about how am I going to explain this delay, and then I think about Jesus and his kindness and his patience and his grace, and then I think about this vine that needs to bear fruit, and I think about Jesus and trust that he will enable me and you to bear fruit so that we can prove that we're his disciples so that we can please his Father, so that we can enter into the joy of our Master. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray for me and for us that you would enable us to bear fruit. Give to us all that we need to bear fruit. Father, I don't even know, I don't even know what that is exactly. I know what the fruit should be like in terms of love and joy and peace and patience but I, I don't know exactly what needs to come into my life in order for me to bear that kind of fruit. I trust you that you're kind and, and even gentle, but most assuredly concerned about me and about us that we'll know joy to its fullness. And so I pray that you will work in us in such a way that we have all that we need 
to bear fruit, that you might be pleased, and that we might be filled with joy. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that uh, there are all those available to pray, so please take advantage of, of that. The response to the benediction is this one, that Jesus is Lord. When you say that, you're recognizing the fact that he really is the vine, and he really is the one who can enable us, because he's the Lord, he can enable us to bear good fruit. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence and that with great joy. To only wise God and Savior Jesus Christ to be glory, dominion, majesty, and power both now and forevermore. And all God's people said, Jesus is Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.